You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Novella Carpenter has written for Salon.com, SFGate.com, and Mother Jones. Her new book is Farm City, The Education of an Urban Farmer. Thank you for joining me, Novella. It's great to be here. Novella, tell us what brought you to a bad part of Oakland. Well, I think I was running from... uh the cleanliness of Seattle, really. Um, I lived in Seattle, Washington for about 11 years, um, and I was ready for a change. Um, I just turned 30, and um, so I I needed a new scene. Um, And so I moved down to Oakland. I had checked out all these different um, areas with my boyfriend. We went, we basically went on a hipster city tour, <laughs> which includes, you know, going to Brooklyn and Austin and Oakland was on the list. Um, and we loved Oakland. One of the reasons we loved it is because as we were driving around in our sort of a beat up pickup truck, um, driving through these neighborhoods um, that were beautiful, um, but sort of falling apart, kind of New Orleans style, you know, old, old houses, just sort of dilapidated houses. Um, these little kids ran outside and, and threw eggs at us. <laughs> And there was something so awesome about that. Like, I mean, I was sort of like, oh, that's too bad. They they egged our car. And then later I thought about it more and I was like, that was cool. They were defending their territory with eggs. And so anyway, we fell in love with Oakland and moved there shortly after. Now, you made some pretty unusual decisions in terms of selecting where you were going to live. Did you know when you moved to Oakland that you were going to become an urban farmer? Well, I had been doing urban farming in Seattle, but we didn't call it that in Seattle because we're sort of more reserved in Seattle. We kind of would just be like, <laughs> oh, I'm just dabbling. Um, but um, And so, yeah, we ha- uh, my boyfriend and I kept chickens and bees and had a big vegetable garden um, in Seattle. And then when we moved to Oakland, um, we started doing similar things, similar projects, chickens, bees, um, garden. Um, and we started encountering people... Um, who called themselves urban farmers, and I realized, hey, I'm an urban farmer. So um, I jumped on the I jumped on the urban farming train and um, started doing um, raising meat birds, and um, eventually spiraled into rabbits and pigs, and now I have goats. So, yeah. I've never heard them called meat birds before. That's scary. <laughs> You're scaring me. <laughs> I, I have a feeling I scare a lot of people. Um, <laughs> if you really look at the book, it's sort of like me killing a lot of animals. Um, I didn't mean it to be exactly that, but um, it's. I hope it's something more, too. Oh, well, what, what I found actually most frightening, being allergic to their sting, was the idea of keeping bees. It's something that would never occur to me, but you say it's one of the easiest things you can do. Mm-hmm. Tell us about how do you keep, how do you get bees to keep? Well, um, it's really great because it's not good if you're allergic to bees. Um, And I keep an EpiPen in my freezer at all times just in case somebody in the neighborhood gets stung and is allergic and needs sort of um, medical attention. Um, But uh, what you do is you just need to get the equipment, which are these, basically they're these um, stackable boxes. um, And then you order your bees. Um, I ordered mine through... um, a a broker in Oregon, and they send you this, like, package, this box, basically, of 10,000 bees and their queen um, through the mail, through the post office, and then you just go pick them up and install them into this box, and then that's their home, and and they provide you honey and pollinate the garden. Well, this idea of of getting animals in the mail is 
it, it's kind of bizarre. <laughs> Don't <laughs> you like, find it really it's weird? It's a little bit like a throwback um, because I think what happened is um, it was part of like the mail system um, was set up for doing sort of um, agricultural um, transactions. Um, and then with the internet now, it's just so easy for you to go online and order chicks and order bees and um, things like that. I mean, you can actually order goats online too. Um, they will like ship them through the mail. But yeah, it's just, it's a weird thing. It's like America. It's like what we do. <laughs> we we raise crops and animals through the mail. So I don't, I don't know. I love it though. It's really convenient. Well, tell us about... Your, your apartment in Oakland, you know, finding an apartment where you can uh, start a, a garden, that's seemed, especially in Oakland, that seems challenging. Yeah. Well, one of the things about living in California, too, and the Bay Area in particular, is that um, land is really expensive. Um, and so there's no way I could ever afford to buy property or buy a house. Um, and so when we would go apartment hunting, one of the things we looked for um, was a place that had an abandoned lot on it. Um, it's sort of like, <laughs> you know, hardwood floors, check, abandoned lot. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Um, so we signed up for that. Um, and 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 the idea was that we would squat on that lot. So um, squatting is kind of like sort of um, taking land that's not being used and put it put it to good use. Um, and Oakland is actually filled, especially the part of Oakland where I live, is filled with um, with abandoned vacant lots that have garbage growing in that growing has <laughs> that has garbage dumped in them, weeds growing. You know, it's it's a blight. Um, and so when we moved into the apartment, we thought, hey, we can irrigate with our gray water, with our, you know, sink water from our apartment and also water from our from our um, from the East Bay mud there and um, and grow vegetables. You know, it just seemed like kind of an obvious thing to do. We didn't expect or I didn't expect that we would be able to stay for we've been there for six years now squatting on that lot. So we've been really lucky now um, when you start planting a garden. Uh, especially in the city, there's a lot of, it seems to me there's a lot of worries. Don't you worry about people like, you know, dogs digging through it, people rooting through it? Mm -hmm. how, how much, uh, you know, mind space do you devote to, like, keeping an eye out on the window? Mm -hmm. Who's Who's down there? Yeah, it's well, it's interesting. Um, well, one of the things I should mention is that our neighborhood is very, um, it's considered blighted. Um, so there's um, all it's a it's a the neighborhood is actually called ghost town um, because there are so many abandoned properties and buildings and lots and um, and people. I have to say there are lots of people who have um, are homeless or um, are drug addicts or whatever. Um, and so that is a concern for us, um, especially around the garden itself is enclosed with a by a fence. Um, I think that the city of Oakland requires that if you have an abandoned lot, the owner has to actually fence it to prevent stuff like mm. people dumping garbage or, or um, whatever coming in there and sleeping. Um, and so it's enclosed, but it isn't locked by any means. So it's totally open and available. <laughs> Anybody can wander in when they want. Um, to me, I find um, our neighborhood to be really interesting. It's a it's a mix of, of all kinds of different ethni ethnicities and, and people with major problems, prostitutes and drug dealers. Um, and for me, I really want those people who are, have a really challenging life to actually experience a garden. Um, it's not fair that only rich people get to go wander around gardens and enjoy gardens. And so it's one of the things that I've really enjoyed. And it's one of the things that I learned about um, farming in the city is that 
gardens are for sharing. And so I'm very excited when I see people out there picking produce, actually, <laughs> um, because I know that people are eating their greens, which they should be. And that's going to make for a healthier them. It's going to make their children healthier. And so I feel like just giving part of farming is um having the crop go to somebody else besides you. And so that's really important for me to actually like make sure that people in my community are, are eating uh, the produce that I grow. Uh, that's actually a command in the Bible to leave, leave some for, for uh, the, the scavengers. To oh, really? Like yes. gleaners? Yeah, yeah. The gleaners. Oh, yeah. nice, yeah. nice. Well, we're more, I'm more of a gleaner. I like people to pick like the pri- prime produce. Um, I mean, of course, you know, I can, I can go out there and harvest stuff whenever I want, and I do. So it's not like I miss out on the crop. I still feed myself a lot of vegetables from the garden. And you're actually even growing uh, the kind of greens that your neighbors like. Yeah, oh yeah, I totally pick greens that I'm like, okay, I'm going to be growing the collards this year because I remember everybody loved those and the mustard greens and um, onions, people love onions because that's the easiest meal to make is like you get an onion and you get some collards and you chop it up and make greens. Um, I do also grow some heirlooms that would not be recognizable to people in my neighborhood <laughs> because then I actually get to eat them. So that's been um, a little tactic that I've employed lately. Um, you know, like there's these green tomatoes. So you can grow these green zebra tomatoes and you can't actually tell if they're ripe unless you know, oh, that's a green zebra. So those kind of sneaky techniques. Um, it, it interests me, too, the way you write in this book about your neighborhood. It's This is a book that's as much about your neighborhood as about what you know, you're doing on your farm. Could you talk about writing about your neighbors and have they read the book? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I look at the book as a love song to Oakland and in particular my neighborhood of Ghost Town. Um, My neighbors haven't read the book yet. Um, I need to, I have copies waiting for um, one of the characters, Bobby, in the book. And um, Lana, who was in the book, has read it. Um, and my other neighbors I need to get copies to. Um, but I think that, you know, the funny thing about my neighborhood is many people don't speak English, so that's going to, you know, proficiently. Mm-hmm. So that might be may, might make it difficult. But really writing the writing the book was sort of me unpacking the idea of who who I am as a, as a white person um, living in this multi-ethnic neighborhood. It really made me realize sort of like, oh, I am an ethnicity too, um, which I realized was like this hippie, <laughs> spawn of hippies kind of, <laughs> um, if that can be an ethnic group or a tribe of some sort. Um, and so I think it was really me thinking about that and thinking about the place where I am as kind of like a triggering town, like a place to figure out um, who you are and what is your place on earth. And um, so, the, yeah, so that the neighborhood is a real resonance for me. There's so many different voices and, and noises and, and smells and different kinds of vegetables being grown even in, the, in other people's lots. Um, so it's really, it's like kind of a mashup um, that's really interesting to me. It, the way you write about it, it it's almost like a, a food chain or an environment, like, you know, a swamp, and here are these creatures here that do this, that, that everything yeah. kind of has its place. There's this, this web of interdependency. Yeah, I mean, I studied biology in college, and it was part, and that was kind of the thing. I, I consider it, like, we're kind of like the intertidal zone <laughs> because <laughs> of that meeting of, you know, the city and the, and the um, rural kind of together creates these boundaries, these, like, there's all this overlap where interesting things happen. For instance, um, we have a lot of farmers from 
the South have moved to Oakland. And so they come really? over, old guys, you know, and they'll be like, yeah, in Alabama, that, this is what we would do. And so they all have these interesting stories of how they do things. Um, and for instance, my um, the guy who runs Brothers Market, it's like the liquor store down the street. Um, he's from Yemen and he used to be a goat farmer and I have goats now. So, you know, he comes over and gives me goat advice. And so <laughs> it's really like this this mixture and, and exchange really where mm-hmm. everybody's sort of like, has roles you know he's the liquor store guy but then if you just scratch the surface he's the goat farmer from Yemen you know and so these are the only thing the only way you can find out these things is by having these urban farms you know where (laughs) everybody gets to be an expert you know and so it's really every yeah everyone has their own role and they do they do their various um their various things and and it's kind of a it's a happy happy community right now now Let's get to some of your meat birds, as you call mm-hmm. them, chickens. Yeah, uh, turkeys, turkeys, ducks, d- ducks. Yeah. geese. Yeah, I, I mean geese are aren't they kind of aggressive and scary? Yeah, you know I've marked geese off my list of urban farming animals to keep. They're just so loud. You know they just mm. make so much noise, and they're just an, they're really hard to pluck. And anyway, the, and they are they can be aggressive too. Like many people I know are like, oh my god, the goose! I'm so scared. <laughs> so um, it can be a problem. But yeah, I think um, you know meat birds are really the way that I first started thinking about he, how I eat meat. You know, and mm-hmm. that maybe I should actually tr- try to own eating meat in a way that's like more adult rather than just like eating meat that I buy at a store. I really wanted to actually see what it, what it means to, um, fully to eat meat, which is raising this animal, having it in my daily life and then, um, eating it and, you know, killing it and eating it. So, um, it was a really important thing. And I chose a turkey partially because it's such a, um, it's such an American icon. You know, mm. it's the thing that everybody eats and thanks for Thanksgiving. It's the thing that when I was a vegetarian, I would refuse. <laughs> you know, it's epic meat. And, um, and so that's why I raised a turkey as one of the first uh, meat birds um, on the farm. And, um, you know, it was more difficult than I thought it would be. Yeah. Tell, tell us about um, raising, like, chickens and turkeys together. There must be some. I mean, you've got problems with interactions. I mean, and you must spend uh, actually a significant amount of time cleaning up after them. Mm-hmm. Not really. I'm not really a clean person, so um, <laughs> I wouldn't really clean up after them. Um, yeah, turkeys and chickens have a similar habit of um, roosting wherever up in a higher spot and then lots of poo um, So at night. Um, and so that tends to happen. But, um, you know, basically what I do is just sprinkle sawdust over that to keep the flies down. And then eventually at the end of the season, I do a whole barn mucking out or chicken coop mucking out kind of process. Um, but yeah, chickens and turkeys can, they can get along, um, in commercial operations, people never mix turkeys and chickens because the dreaded blackhead disease, um, that turkeys are apt to get, but in a really small urban farm setting, it's not really a problem. Um, and so they were, they're actually okay together. Um, the turkeys tend to be more aggressive than chickens. And so they're, and they're kind of like these weird psycho, they're like the, psycho killers of the of the turkey world or i mean of the of the bird world really um, yeah because they're sort of like they'll eat anything you know what i mean and mm. i mean chickens will too this is the thing that a lot of people don't know is that chickens are omnivores so if one of their friends dies she's lunch like they will eat her and mm. um so it's really kind of gross but <laughs> 
And turkeys? Does this happen, happen often in your uh, No, farm? it doesn't, thank God. <laughs> but they are, they are very eager meat eaters. I mean, mm. you know, if you bring them, if you give them, like, scraps off your plate and they actually had some meat on it, they just go crazy for it. Um, and I've caught mice, you know, like I have a mouse trap, and I'll bring out the little mouse that I caught, and they will just chase each other in order to be the person, the chicken that gets to eat the mouse. <laughs> I mean, it's sick. Um, but anyway, so the, but the problem with the turkeys really was that they are more curious than um, the chickens. Chickens basically want to just be in their area, where turkeys have a tendency to want to roam. And so roam they did. They, you know, walked up and down 20, 28th Street, which is my street, and then sometimes got onto the main street. Oh, my God. And, um, yeah, it kind of caused <laughs> a lot of, you know, honking and cars squealing and those kinds of things. But, um that was that was the biggest problem with the turkeys for sure, and I and I lost two of the turkeys, two of the three when I started my first um, turkey experiment. So those aren't very good odds, you know. Well, now tell us how you you buy you buy a turkey through the mail, I guess, mm-hmm. right? And the the happy postman co- brings yeah. you this box with right. a, a turkey or turkey chicks in it. How, yeah. How do you buy them in lots of what five or? You have to. It's interesting because when you buy um, when you buy poultry and um, they come in a box, but you have to have them. They're basically day old chicks when they're mailed, and they're living on the um, the reserves of the yolk. You know, they've they've digested the yolk and they've become chicks now. Um, and so they're they're actually able to make it through the mail for like 48 hours or something. So they're fine, um, but they can get cold. And so what they have to do is actually have more than I think it's something like 12 or 10 chick minimum mm. in that box because they cluster together and keep warm. Um, so that's kind of how that goes. Yeah, you, know, you just order them through the mail, internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, well, how much how much will what a dozen turkeys cost me? Turkeys usually cost, um, I usually buy from Murray McMurray. It's a hatchery in Iowa, but there are hatcheries all over. A turkey will, polt, the technical term is polt, not a chick, um, will cost you about 250 Boy, that's cheap for something that's going to turn out to be a big meal for well, someone I know. down the line. Right. And then, well, you know, one of the initial things I had noticed is that, you know, if I ordered a um, an organic um, heritage breed turkey, it was like $125 or something, you know, at Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought, oh, my God, I can totally do that. But I ended up spending totally more <laughs> because, you know, like I bought food. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't wise to the ways of um, raising animals on the cheap. Um, And so I would buy bags of feed and feed the turkey that and pelleted feed. You know, it's like corn and soy in this pellet form. Um, And it grows them really fast, but I'm not not totally convinced that it's the way to go. Well, I... You in your book you talk about the fish gut experiment. Tell us yeah. about fish guts yeah. and the problem with feeding turkeys fish all the time. Well, it wasn't really the turkeys that were fed the fish guts. It was the pigs. So when we had pigs, um, my whole goal was to raise them exclusively on dumpstered food. So food mm. that we found in dumpsters or at restaurants or you know whatever people scraps on the ground, whatever we could find. Um, and, uh, one of the problems, one of the things that is done is, um, people used to back in the day before the, you know, pelleted food came online, um, is that they would feed their, um, their livestock, uh, fish guts. Um, fish guts are really not something that we eat. So it's a waste product, obviously. Um, and it's really high in protein. And so actually turkeys and pigs and any sort of omnivorous, um, animal would really enjoy some fish guts. Um, and so they did. The only problem is that then the meat may taste a little fishy. And so the uh, problem is you have to sort of finish them 
on less uh, stinky food. Now, when you are pigs are chickens are fairly small. Turkeys are a bit bigger. Pigs are a different size genre entirely. And just talk about having sharing the space that you live with this large, hot, you know, <laughs> omnivorous animal. <laughs> large hot animal I never thought of them that way but that was what they were um yeah well when we first got when uh, my boyfriend and I first bought the pigs it was kind of like it was an obvious it seemed like an obvious trajectory you know when you look at your life and you're sort of like yes you know first I'm going to do this and then I'm going to you know build up to it and so for the urban farming adventures it would I had build up from turkeys and then I had learned something from rabbits and now I was ready for turkey for um pigs and with the pigs um you know you buy them I bought them at a at an auction. I didn't buy them through the mail. <laughs> um, I went to a 4-H auction. Very old-timey 4-H oh boy, that's auction. Just uh, high school days. It was so cute, and there was an auctioneer, and it was very. You got numbers, and you got to wave them and stuff. It was really fun. But um, you know, you buy them, and they're cute and little piglets. You know, they're small. Mm. Um, and I guess I just hadn't really. I guess I hadn't thought about it too much, but yeah, they grew to be giant hogs. I mean, they were over 250 pounds each at the end of, of their life. So um, they kind of outgrew their space. They they ate more food than I had ever dreamed they would need to eat. Um, they became a part-time job and mm. a major, major chore to do. Um, and so, yeah, the pigs were probably maybe a little bit of a misstep. But on the other hand, the pork was so delicious and so amazing um, that sometimes I think it was all worth it. You describe a recipe where you cooked a, a pork shoulder for eight hours at 200 degrees and yeah. banana leaves. It sounds delicious. Oh I want to go. I want to do that myself. It was so good, and it was rubbed with like anchote powder, which is like a Yucatan sort of specialty. Oh my god! And it just becomes, it just comes off the bone, and it's it's so amazing. And the whole house just smells like Mexico. And oh, it was delicious. It was amazing. Sorry you missed it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, <clears throat> in order to get that pork shoulder, uh, you had to, it seems like, you know, killing a chicken, we see it all the time. I guess you just twist their necks. Is that how you kill mm-hmm. them? I actually use pruder. I use loppers, and I just lop their heads off. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and so you'd gotten used to that, I would presume. Yeah. And, and the turkey is a bit bigger, and maybe, you know, do you? Have, might have you named your turk at least one of them right 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 Ow. that turkey had a name i didn't name it my vegan um neighbor named <laughs> just to torment you <laughs> just right to torment me yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i wasn't really into naming animals especially when i first started because i was like i'm a farmer and farmers don't name their animals you know look what happened with charlotte's web um but um but as time has gone on i realized that it actually is i think appropriate to name your meat animals because it's a signifier of respect and love and you know I want to love my meat and raise it humanely and um, and uh, and all of that stuff so I do think it is actually nice to give them a name it's it, I, I, I love that you were I, in high school I, I believe a, a vegetarian and yeah. now you're raising and, and killing your own meat which I think is super honorable and really mm. admirable mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, could you talk about the emotional journey that you made to be able to do that yeah well, yeah, I had been a vegetarian um, actually in high school and in college, um, and one, the, my downfall was, as with most vegetarians, eating some bacon, mm. um, and, uh, you know, you just get a taste for it, and you can't, it just is so good. 
Um, and then I started thinking about where my bacon came from, and it was kind of horrifying. If you look at any of the factory farms of pork, it is and I actually get tears in my eyes thinking about them. Um, it's so horrible what they do to the pigs. But anyway, um, so I was really interested in the idea of um, of, of eating meat, of eating bacon <laughs> in a way that was like as righteous as possible. You know what I mean? And the problem is, is, you know, I live in Oakland Bay Area and there's this whole cult of food that is really wonderful. It's, it's a great sort of culture, but at the same time, it is... It does smack of elitism very often. It's mind-bogglingly it's expensive. It's crazy how expensive it is. And um, so I was kind of repulsed by that at the same time. And so that was sort of one of our motivations for doing the pigs, raising pigs, was that, you know, we would be able to not spend very, very much money and then we would have all this pork and it would be delicious and, you know, and totally sustainable because it's an issue with, with pork especially. Um, because of all the grain that they use, um, that they eat, that comes from Iowa. You know, it's just, it's complicated, you know. Mm -hmm. Raising meat is really complicated, and eating meat is really complicated, too. So um, I kind of wanted to do, um, you know, a more DIY um, approach to bacon. So that's how that happened. Um, in terms of emotions, um, you know, it's interesting because I think what happens is people who are vegetarian or vegan and I always say this, but some of my best friends are vegans. Um, I love vegans and vegetarians. Um, if more people ate like them, then the world would be a better place. Um, but on that account, um, I the thing is about raising animals and being a farmer is that you the animals are not humans. Like I think that's like the core problem that people have is that they want to make the animals into humans or person people you know they, they think you know and it's because we have dogs and cats that we wear they put we put little sweaters on them and we take them out for walks and buy them expensive dog treats and those kinds of things so they're like our children but with work animals it's totally different from day one you know that they are going to be on the dinner table there's mm -hmm. no other way around it there's mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. that is the trajectory of that animal's life um, and so that makes it easier you don't really get attached in the same way as like if you had a pet dog or something um, and it's also, if you think about sort of the history, uh, the cultural aspects of meat eating, um, you know, most people have never kept pigs as pets. It's just not really something that's done. No. Um, and so, and there's a reason because they eat a lot and they're just sort of huge and smelly and they're not pets. Um, and it's the same thing with, um, with turkeys. And I mean, I guess some people do keep rabbits as pets, but... Um, they're not charismatic animals, as I like to say. Mm, um, interesting. Pigs can it. be pretty smart. Um, my pigs were not that terribly smart. Um, <laughs> and, you know, there's just a moment of, of um, with farming, with having a relationship with animals, you are, and, and it's hard for people, especially people with liberal sort of backgrounds, to own the fact that you are in control of this animal's life, that you are the boss, <laughs> you're the man. And, um, and so you decide when it's time for that animal to be slaughtered. And it's a big responsibility. Um, but at the same time, it's also very, it's like I was saying, it's like being an adult. You know, you're taking, you are you know, these animals are under your care and you decide when it's time to, um, to have them slaughtered. Um, and, and what, and there are all these other factors too, you know, their meat ratio, their meat to food ratio slows down. They have a plateau. They're not going to get any bigger. Mm. You're going to keep feeding them. It doesn't make sense. 
um, your neighbors get mad at you because you have pigs in your backyard. Yeah, I was going to ask about <laughs> you know, that. I mean, <laughs> things start to smell. Um, so it's time for them to go, you know, yeah. and that's really what happened with, with the pigs. Um, and the other animals, too. You know, it's like that with the rabbits as well. Well, this is something we need to talk about. Your neighbors and the pigs and the turkeys. I mean, right. you move in. Mm-hmm. They're just looking at you. You're just a nice white couple. And right. they, they think, well, that they might have some newspapers. <laughs> Talk about uh, how your neighbors reacted to the increasingly large and complicated menagerie that you brought into this. Your, you know, uh, an urban setting right. where most people think that don't belong there. Yeah, totally. Most people do think that 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 don't belong there. Um, we have the interesting thing about our neighborhood is that it is so multi-ethnic, and so many people are from um, Vietnam. Where, you know, routinely in major cities in Vietnam, people are raising ducks or chickens in their backyard. Um, I had a Nigerian guy come by yesterday or a couple of weeks ago, and he was like, no, you have good Nigerian goats. I want to see them. And I showed him the goats. They're on the back stairs, you know, running up and down my back stairs <laughs> where I have, like, my laundry and stuff. And he's like, it's just like Nigeria. I mean, this is like... The third world is so ahead of us in terms of urban agriculture. It is mind-blowing. Um, and it's because we do, they don't have that same dichotomy of, like, that the country's out there and it's some, like, mythical place of beauty and rural values and all this stuff. And then the city is where we do business. <laughs> and that's it. And so um, there's not that kind of um, dichotomy um, with a lot of my neighbors. That's not their thinking either. Um, so those haven't been – that hasn't been a huge issue. Um, I think the pigs were a little bit like pushing the envelope, and one of my neighbors at least complained about the smell. Um, but he did it in a very nice way, and he was basically like, you know, just – is suggesting to me that I move the pigs over to this a er- uh, different area, you know, this other lot where the where the pigs could go live. Um, so it's always done with sort of a gentle, gentle touch. Could could you talk about you know the um, effect of this uh, on you know your your relationship with with your, your boyfriend Bill? I mean, mm-hmm. this is I, did he did he know that he was going to be living with pigs and turkeys well you know bill is like it's funny because bill is an instigator is what he is Mm. so you know for instance when um we were going when we were getting the pigs when we were at the auction i'd sort of convinced him to go to this auction it's going to be fun and um you know we're i'm sitting there i bid on one pig and or one piglet and then you know he's sitting there and he's like get another one you know so he's kind of like (laughs) it's like he gets he gets really into it too Mm. um and it's great because you know a couple you have to work together in order to make this work if he wasn't on board with this project then there would be no way this could continue on it definitely takes two people um especially feeding the pigs i mean but you know it became like kind of a date for us you know it'd be like let's go let's go get some pig slop tonight honey and it's like okay that sounds fun you know or let's go get some manure for our garden beds you know because we have these like um, raised garden beds that we're constantly feeding this composted horse manure um so yeah you kind of have to make it into a fun date like project thing as, as you wrote this book and you learned more about the movement you were a part of, could you talk about like becoming a part of that? And you're kind of like at the head of the class now, aren't you? I don't know about head of the class. I just saw um, – because basically what – I mean, and this is – the people who I know who are doing urban farming are, partic- are, are people who are um, – really committed to the idea of um of social justice food justice 
that um, people in um, poorer neighborhoods should be fed quality food. And I am too. Um, but most of them use as a model a nonprofit model. So, you know, City Slicker Farms in Oakland and People's Grocery and Obugs, all of these Oakland urban farming organizations um, have a sort of a, a nonprofit model that they're following. So they raise money and then they do their urban farming projects. Um, and those are great because those are, that's what they do. That's their job. Whereas mine is more like a crazy hobby. <laughs> and, you know, I happen to be a writer, so I got to write about it. I mean, I'm definitely not the best urban farmer on the block. I mean, if you, you know, if you talk to, to people, it would be like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not like the, you know, I'm just not, uh, I'm still learning so much stuff, you know, it just happened to be that I wrote this book. And so, and I'm definitely more like head of the class in terms of livestock, because a lot of times with nonprofits, vegetarian groups and stuff do not want you to raise meat animals. And so I've had this sort of ability to just go and do whatever crazy thing I wanted to do without ever having a nonprofit like board say, no, you can't raise a pig in Oakland. So it's kind of like I'm more like the DIY freewheeling kind of person. Um, and that's not to say that what I do is more valuable than what any of the nonprofit work that's done that is so valuable and so important and has an educational element to it and isn't haphazard like me. And so I, you know, I would never say I'm ahead of the class at all, but, um, but I am helping um, spread the word, which is, you know, people um, oftentimes are really confused about urban agriculture. They think they have no idea what it is. Um, and they think that, you know, growing vegetables in the city would be dirty. <laughs> you know, there would be like, is, aren't those like, you know, collard greens dirty? You know, that kind of thing. So um, to spread the word that, no, it's not, and there's all this wasted land in many cities, places, and that it's something that's happening all over the world um, is, is probably a good thing to, to get out there. Uh, that's one of the things I thought was most interesting about your book is that it kind of shows us something that's like um, we should all think, wow, this is something that anybody can do anywhere. I mean, mm -hmm. as you say, we are behind the third world. Oh, we're rapidly joining, and we yeah. might as well. It seems like it's uh, the way to go with a yeah. local food movement. Oh, totally. And I mean, then you look at other people like Will Allen, and every major city has an urban farming group. You just have to look into it. You know, you just Google urban farming and the name of your city, and you will find it. Um, so there's just it's just a huge movement. And as I've been traveling around on book tour, um, I was up in Seattle and Portland. I mean, so many kids, like people who are like in their 20s, they want to have um, something to do. You know, it's sort of like their, it's their movement. And so it's really, it's just amazing to watch it snowball and, and with the Michelle Obama garden and, and all of that stuff. It's, it just, it just feels like it's really, the time is ripe. I've been speaking with Novella Carpenter. Her new book is Farm City, The Education of an Urban Farmer. Thank you for joining me, Novella. Thanks, Rick. It was fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.